This is The Guardian. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. It's not often I get to bring you a positive environmental story on Science Weekly. But news broke this week which had us all celebrating. The phase-out of nearly 99% of banned ozone-depleting substances has succeeded in safeguarding the ozone layer, leading to a notable recovery of the ozone layer in the upper stratosphere and decreased human exposure to harmful ultraviolet rays from the sun. The ozone layer is on track to recover completely within 40 years, giving many people hope that in the future the world can come together to tackle environmental issues successfully. So today, we're taking a look at this momentous scientific and political achievement and asking whether it really is the end of the story. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Paul Newman, you're a chief scientist for Earth Science at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Centre and you're also a co-chair of the Scientific Assessment Panel to the Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer. Now, I'd be surprised if anyone hasn't heard of the ozone layer, but I am curious to find out what actually is it? The ozone layer is uh, above us. Ozone is a molecule, three oxygen atoms. And the beauty of ozone in the stratosphere high above us is that it absorbs solar ultraviolet radiation. And solar UV or ultraviolet UV radiation can break the bonds of biologically active molecules. That results for human beings in skin cancers and sunburns. Um, it can damage plant growth. Uh, so UV has a number of, of negative effects. So we want a nice, healthy ozone layer above us to screen that ultraviolet radiation. Take me back to the beginning of this story. When did we start to notice that the ozone layer was being damaged? 
Well, back in 1974, a couple of scientists, uh, Mario Molina and uh, Sherry Rowland, hypothesized that chlorofluorocarbons, which were a common industrial gas, they're completely man-made, could break down in the stratosphere, release their chlorine, and the chlorine would attack the ozone layer. Now, chlorofluorocarbons were used to produce foams for home insulations. They were used in air conditioners. They were used in refrigerators. They were used in spray cans for uh, deodorants and, and hairspray and so forth. So CFCs were really common back in the 1970s. Now, CFC 11 has a lifetime of about 55 years. CFC 12 has a lifetime of over 100 years. So we found um, by the mid-80s that ozone was being depleted in our atmosphere as CFCs continued to accumulate in the atmosphere. When you talk about the CFCs attacking the ozone, I always remember hearing about a hole. But what actually is a hole when it comes to the atmosphere? (laughs) Well, it turns out that those chlorofluorocarbons, when you release them down low here at the Earth's surface, they don't react with anything. They mix pretty easily in the lower atmosphere here. And they get into the stratosphere, um, in the, they actually rise into the stratosphere in the tropics, and then they circulate through the stratosphere. So after a few years, they wind up over Antarctica. Um, and, and by the time they get to Antarctica, actually, the CFCs have broken down and released their chlorine already. We discovered back in 1985, it was uh, three British scientists They work for the British Antarctic Survey, and they discovered that there was a a very strong decline of ozone over Antarctica. Now, all of the ozone isn't gone, but when you looked at images, satellite images, you could see there was a big depression. And so somebody said, well, boy, that looks like somebody just dug a hole um, into the ozone layer. So it became known as the ozone hole. Initially, when scientists made this link between CFCs and the damage that they were doing to the ozone layer, as you said, the CFCs were really quite widespread. They were in lots of different things. Did scientists receive any pushback on their findings? When you have a new hypothesis comes out, there will always be other scientists who will attack it, you know, because a lot of times there isn't a lot of data behind a new hypothesis. This is the scientific process. And in fact, in 1985, there was three theories of the Antarctic ozone hole, all of which were somewhat probable. By 1987, it only took two years to actually decide to figure out that it was chlorine from chlorofluorocarbons was attacking ozone over Antarctica. The industry responded. um, You you have to realize that the, the refrigeration industry, the chemical production industry, we're talking about billions of dollars a lot of jobs at stake. So this was a big, big thing. And businesses naturally pushed back. But with time, in fact, DuPont, a big chemical manufacturer, actually decided that if, in fact, it was causing ozone depletion, it was going to stop production of CFCs. And that's exactly what they did. So it was a real convergence of science, industry, and policymakers from various countries to work to control the production and consumption of these chlorofluorocarbons, a a remarkable achievement. So how challenging was it to get international agreement on what to do? It was very challenging. First of all, you know, I, I talk as if the science was quite certain at that time, but of course it wasn't. And so there was a lot of concern that we were going to implement policies that would damage industry, damage jobs, 
And in fact, it, the science wouldn't be strongly behind it. So it took time. The science continued to strengthen. And in 1987, there was a breakthrough agreement called the Montreal Protocol that controlled the production and consumption of these ozone-depleting substances. So that was a real success. The way they set it up initially with the Montreal Protocol is almost like an insurance policy. Why don't we just take our foot off the gas here and coast a little bit? Let's see if the science is really going to solidify, but let's not continue to rush forward producing more and more CFCs. And the agreement is strengthened with time as the science has become more solid. So they eventually, they curtailed the production and consumption of CFCs entirely. And countries continued to sign on, ratify the agreement. Now, every country in the world has signed on to the Montreal Protocol. And in fact, the increase of ozone-depleting substances reversed in the early 1990s. And by the early 2000s, we could definitely see that CFC levels in the atmosphere were starting to decrease. The issue is that a lot of aerosols contain a chemical CFCs which are destroying the, the ozone layer. And in fact, um, after a concerted campaign by environmentalists, um, consumers really are responding to that and manufacturers in kind. So you can see that from here, we have one that is labelled CFC, um, what does it say? Does not contain CFCs, so it is ozone friendly. I think a part of this story is how much it captured the imagination outside of science and industry as well. You know, I can remember from my childhood learning about the hole in the ozone layer and CFCs. Why do you think that this became such a big issue in the public sphere too? Severe depletion of the ozone layer was going to increase skin cancer quite a bit. That's a very personal thing. A lot of people reacted to that. They knew that there was a direct impact on their health. So I think that was a big source of momentum to bring the agreement forward. But there were a number of other effects. You know, for example, uh, increased UV radiation damages crops. And in fact, uh, some simulations we've done, that's one of the major effects is the damaging of crops. And then food yields go down and there isn't enough food to feed the planet. Paul, we've obviously known for a little while that CFCs were reducing in the atmosphere and things were looking better. So what does the report that came out this week tell us? First of all, in 2014, we knew that ozone was no longer on the decline. In fact, in 2010 and 2014, we knew that it wasn't continuing to go down. In 2018, in the upper stratosphere, up around an altitude of 40 kilometers or so, in the northern mid-latitudes, we could see that actually ozone was starting to go up. In the new report this year, ozone is on the upswing in not only the southern mid-latitudes, in the tropics, and in the northern mid-latitudes. So we're really seeing positive impacts in the upper stratosphere. And in fact, we can model that and show that, in fact, it's in very precise agreement with what our theory would predict as ozone-depleting substances like chlorofluorocarbons decline. Seeing that upward trend for the ozone layer and really statistically showing the difference that's been made by cutting out these CFCs. I mean, it must have been quite a powerful moment for you, having worked on this for so long. Yes, it was. Uh, Madeline, when the ozone hole was discovered in 1985, 
I must admit to a few sleepless nights because we didn't know what was really causing it or how you were going to reverse it. It was a big problem that was solved. And so it gives me some confidence that other environmental issues can also be dealt with. Do you think there's something about this agreement or this problem that made it successful? You know, because when we think about the rest of the climate agreements that we've made so far, they haven't worked quite so well. The use of of chlorofluorocarbons was confined to only uh, a few industries. And there were technologies that could replace those uses. Um, there's a lot of uses of carbon dioxide, or a lot of production of carbon dioxide and fossil fuels, methane or natural gas. Um, it's tougher because there are many, many more sources. But that doesn't mean that there can't eventually be a solution. And in fixing the ozone layer, does this impact at all on our fight against the climate crisis? Yeah, uh, controlling ozone-depleting substances like chlorofluorocarbons are powerful greenhouse gases. So controlling them has had a very dramatic effect on avoiding uh, additional warming of the Earth's surface. That's a, a second positive outcome of the Montreal Protocol. Now, I do think it is important to address here what we've replaced CFCs with, hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, which are also pretty potent greenhouse gases. That's correct. Uh, HFCs, um, a number of them are very powerful greenhouse gases. And so the Montreal Protocol parties recognized that they had in fact created a problem in climate. So they created a new amendment to the Montreal Protocol called the Kigali Amendment, was signed in Kigali, Rwanda. That amendment controls hydrofluorocarbons, and the HFCs will be controlled in the 2030s. But uh, we already see in this assessment report, levels of HFCs are still increasing, but they're slowing down. Countries are already taking their own actions. We project that uh, by the year 2100, we expected with no controls on HFCs, about a 0.3 to 0.5 degree Celsius increase in the Earth's surface temperature. Now we expect that it'll be less than 0.05. So not only did the Montreal Protocol save the ozone layer, it's a very effective climate agreement now also. But potentially this isn't the end of the road, is it? Because there have been some things touted as fixes to the climate crisis that could actually reverse some of the progress that's been made. Yeah, there are, there's always going to be worries. The ozone layer is an essential part of our Earth's atmosphere. Um, there's another issue with uh, what we call stratospheric aerosol injection. This is an idea to put sulfur into the stratosphere that creates little particles and they reflect radiation away from the Earth and that acts to cool the surface. So we call it, some people call it geoengineering, reversing climate change. Um, but that has an adverse effect in the stratosphere. It affects the ozone layer. Now, nobody's doing it yet, uh, but it's been proposed. So we as scientists need to think very carefully about what might happen if such a solution to climate was implemented. Well, despite that, Paul, it sounds like 
We might be on the home stretch with the ozone layer, so hopefully you're not having sleepless nights anymore. No, I, I, I sleep well. I, I feel that, in fact, the world's nations have, have uh, done well for our children, our, 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 you know, our future generations. I'm so pleased to hear that. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks again to Paul Newman. We've put a link to our coverage of this story on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Solomon King. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.